With over 15,000 nuclear weapons on hair-trigger alert around the world, in the hands of only nine nations, many of which historically loathe each other, it might be realistic for a person to think that we're all doomed. So what good is it for the United Nations to hold a conference on banning nuclear weapons when of the 127 countries that show up, none of them has the bomb? Well, when an honestly held international conversation on banning the bomb takes place and everyone has a chance to talk with the bullies out of the room, they state... The nuclear haves are holding the whole rest of the world hostage to their security needs. And what this campaign is doing is shifting the conversation from security to humanitarian consequences. When you hear statements like that being made at the United Nations, you start to get the feeling that maybe, just maybe, there's a way out of that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a deeply enlightening conversation on the United Nations Conference to Ban Nuclear Weapons with Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, who was a delegate to those talks. She goes into the emerging strategies that we can all participate in to pressure countries to give up their nuclear weapons. And we'll include a brief explanation of one of those strategies with Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. There may be light at the end of the nuclear weapons tunnel that has nothing to do with a detonation barreling down on us. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness. The nuclear reactor duck and cover report on the latest reportable problems at those crumbling U.S. nuclear reactors. Plus, news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than all of American mainstream media will cover this week. Sad but true. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 11, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here is a great one. Southern California Edison, owners of the failed San Onofre nuclear power plant in Southern California, agreed on Friday, April 7th, to begin negotiations aimed at relocating tons of radioactive waste away from the San Diego County coastline. The dramatic announcement came in the form of a brief filed in San Diego Superior Court where a showdown hearing was looming next week between majority plant owner Southern California Edison and environmentalists who want the spent fuel shipped off. 
Edison has said for years that storing 3.6 million pounds of nuclear waste on the grounds for decades to come is a safe and reasonable option. This is storage in canisters of only five-eighths of an inch thick stainless steel that cannot be monitored or fixed and would stand within 100 feet of the ever-rising ocean. But hey, safety is in the eye of the beholder. Advocacy groups opposed the burial plan and were thrilled with the announcement. We're working on a special report on this and we'll have it for you in the coming weeks on Nuclear Hot Seat. In Carlsbad, New Mexico, at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, site, the first shipment of radioactive waste in more than three years has been received. On February 14, Valentine's Day of 2014, a 55-gallon drum from Los Alamos Labs exploded underground, contaminating the site, releasing radioactive plutonium and americium up the ventilation shafts and contaminating the underground, effectively shutting off the site's ability to function. The repository plans to receive two shipments a week at first, but the exact schedule will be adjusted based on several factors, including how quickly the waste can be taken below ground once it arrives in southern New Mexico. Because, you see, the work now takes more time because the underground is contaminated, which requires hazmat suits, respirators, and heavy monitoring devices that the workers previously did not require. Now they must wear them to protect against the contamination, as well as facing limited ventilation below ground. WIP is the nation's only deep underground repository for nuclear waste and only for mid-range World War II nuclear weapons waste, not the highly radioactive waste that comes from nuclear reactors. We've got no place to put that stuff. In Utah, at the south rim of the Grand Canyon National Park, a wet winter and increased groundwater flow have raised water levels at the Canyon Uranium Mine, stirring concerns among conservationists who fear the spread of uranium mines could contaminate water across the plateau. Samples taken at the mine's holding pond recently tested at 130 parts of dissolved uranium per billion. The Environmental Protection Agency considers anything above 30 parts per billion to be unsafe to drink, and campers are regularly warned to pack in their water and make no use of local resources. In Salem County in New Jersey, only 125 miles away from Midtown Manhattan, a new report shows rising cancer rates in the years since the nuclear reactors have been built and gone into operation. This new report is by epidemiologist Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project, commissioned by a citizen's watchdog group called Unplug Salem. It states that there have been rising cancer rates in the communities around the two nuclear power plants. Prior to 1990, the cancer rates for Salem County were below the average rate for other counties in New Jersey. According to this new report, as of 2014, the cancer rates for Salem County are now above the average rate for New Jersey counties. The report does not claim to have shown a direct link between the increasing cancer rates and radiological releases from the three nuclear power reactors, but it does call for increased diligence on the part of state and national regulators of nuclear power plants. Ha! 
current death rates in Salem County exceed the state rates for both genders, all age groups, all races and ethnic groups, and all major types of cancer, according to the study. That's why when it comes to nuclear reactors, we all need to duck (laughs) and cover. And here's this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Duck and Cover Report. At Fitzpatrick in upstate New York on April 4th, a trip signal was applied to the incorrect instrument. Ah, that old bugaboo, human error, which resulted in a condition that could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function of a system needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. (coughs) At Palo Verde in Arizona on April 5th, a GE Hitachi-type circuit breaker exhibited arcing and smoking during current injection testing. This condition could result in the breaker failing to perform its safety function and thus could create a substantial safety hazard. Here's the interesting part. The breaker had been refurbished by GE Hitachi before it was put into use. So here we've got a nuclear retread. At Wolf Creek in Kansas, they are still under the threat of tornado-generated missiles. Dorothy. And here's to you. Nuke Plant Robinson in South Carolina, where on April 3rd, there was an improperly performed procedure step. In other words, human error. Problems at Watts Bar in Tennessee, Grand Gulf in Mississippi had a manual reactor scram, and at Summer in South Carolina on April 6th, a contractor manager had a confirmed positive for alcohol. Duck! (laughs) And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. Summer's almost here, and if you are in Washington State and looking for something really fun to do as a family, why just head on down to the Hanford site for one of three tours of the Manhattan Project National Historic Park. That's right, Mom, Dad, Mom and Mom, Dad and Dad, and all the kids can go and take a look at one of the most radiologically contaminated sites in the world, as well as an ongoing U.S. Superfund site. A tour of pre-World War II historic sites at Hanford will take visitors to areas of the site inhabited by settlers and native tribes before they were evicted in 1943 to make way for the Secret Weapons Project, No saying as to where they were evicted to. But all they'll see is a recreation of a bank building from that time, which is a cute little building that will remind them of times past and the folks who lived out there. B-reactor tours are offered separately. And the B-reactor was the world's first full-scale nuclear reactor class, ushering in the atomic age. It produced the plutonium used for the world's first nuclear detonation, the Trinity Test in 1945, and the atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki in Japan. No official word, but it's believed that the concession stands to the B-reactor tour involve the ability to rent a radiation monitor, a weapons-grade gas mask, and a lead-lined hazmat suit, recommended for those of reproductive years. There are no age restrictions or citizenship restrictions for the tours. So, even if you're a member of one of those minorities that regularly gets beaten up on United Airlines planes and thrown off it like a sack of onions, 
or merely bullied, catcalled, and threatened with being beat up in the not-so-civil society around you, you can go on these tours. Now, note that the federal hiring freeze has delayed arrival of the Park Service's site representative, who will be based in Hanford, and Trump's first quarter salary, which is supposedly but not verifiably donated to the financially eviscerated National Park Service, does not appear to cover it. This has also delayed the planned revamping of tour scripts to draw on the Park Service's storytelling skills and ability to deliver state-approved propaganda about nuclear. And that's why Hanford Site and all of you behind this really bad, wrong-headed tour program, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Up in Canada... A report affirming the shoreline of Lake Huron as the best place to bury radioactive waste failed to provide information the Canadian government had requested, according to the federal environmental authorities. In a detailed letter and document sent to Ontario Public Generation, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency criticized the utilities report as inadequate and asked it to try again, much to the delight of project opponents. This, this OPG report came after Environment Minister Catherine McKenna asked the Utility Board of Lance Lance on the 16th for information on, among other things, the feasibility of burying below or moderately radioactive waste elsewhere. In response, OPG insisted the Bruce Nuclear Plant near Kincardine, Ontario, was the best location for its proposed deep geologic repository only 1.2 kilometers, or three-quarters of a mile, from the shores of Lake Huron, and from there, the rest of the Great Lakes. The federal agency called OPG's analysis of other sites vague and superficial, and made substantive requests for information on the potential effects on the Great Lakes and the water supply, which is an issue of huge concern to project opponents, otherwise known as sane people. According to Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, this will delay OPG for at least a year or two, as none of these challenges are easily met. In France, the country's oldest nuclear power reactor will stop electricity production by April 2020. The Fessenheim plant, close to the borders of Switzerland and Germany, will close for good once a new generation EPR, pressurized water reactor, under construction in Flamanville is operational. And they think it's going to happen on schedule when nothing nuclear ever happens on schedule? Hopefully they'll shut it down anyway. And word out of the UK is that U.S. engineering giant Bechtel is to pull out of small modular reactor development. They have pulled out, note the languaging, of the small modular reactor business entirely, saying they will only build them but don't want to develop the tech. Over to Japan for a ministerial meltdown. On April 4th, Japan's disaster reconstruction minister, Masahiro Imamura, said that displaced people yet to return to areas of Fukushima Prefecture deemed safe to live in are responsible for themselves, before snapping at the reporter whose question prompted the remarks. When pressed by a reporter, he said, It's their own responsibility, their own choice. Why are you saying something so rude? that he pointed at the reporter and said, Take that back! 
get out of here. When someone yelled, you're the one who's causing problems for evacuees, he shouted back, shut up, and stormed out of the room. Ah, diplomacy. He's about to be recruited by United Airlines. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, some good news. On very short notice, I have been invited to attend and cover a conference in Las Vegas, a Native American forum on nuclear issues to be held at the University of Las Vegas on Saturday, April 22nd. But I need your help to get there. Here's what you can do to make a difference. The conference is free, but I will be facing travel expenses and housing needs. If I can raise the money in the next 10 days, I'll be able to make the necessary arrangements to get there and report on nuclear and environmental issues from the perspective of our First Nations. So I'm asking for your support. If you can help, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and when you make your donation, if you like, you can tag it to this event. Know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated. And you'll not only get my gratitude, which you've got anyway, but we will all get a great report on the conference. Remember, I have to be up there only 10 days from now. So if you're moved to help, please do what you can as soon as you can. And for that and everything else, yes, indeed, you have my gratitude. So, okay. What if the United Nations throws a conference to ban nuclear weapons and none of the nuke-owning nations show up? Why bother? Well, today's guest gives us an earful as to why it was important, what it has accomplished, and the important tool we will all have very soon as a result of this conference that can help us ban nuclear weapons forever. Alice Slater is the New York director of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and serves on the coordinating committee of World Beyond War. She was a delegate to the recently concluded four-day conference at the UN on banning nuclear weapons and offers some stunning insights that were, of all things, if you can believe it, hopeful. Her emphatic, desk-thumping, New York style at times went far afield of strictly nuclear matters but as Alice shows, metakwiasin, it's all related. And she pulls it together in her inimitable style. Alice Slater, so good to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm delighted to be here. Alice, let's start out with a little bit about the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, how it got started, and what your position is with it. Well, I'm working as a volunteer with the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. I represent them at the United Nations in New York. They're based in Santa Barbara. And they were the first secretariat for the Abolition 2000 Network, which is over 2,000 organizations in 95 countries working for a treaty to ban the bomb, which was organized in 1995 when the Non-Proliferation Treaty was due to expire. That was a treaty that was signed in 1970. Five nuclear weapon states, the U.S., Russia, England, China, and France, promised to make good faith efforts to get rid of their nuclear weapons if the rest of the world promised not to get them. And everybody signed except the India, Pakistan, and Israel, and they went and got their bombs. Then... 
this treaty had this Faustian bargain that in order to sweeten the pot for people to join, they promised them an inalienable right to peaceful nuclear energy. I mean, just think of it. Our Constitution talks about inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did peaceful nuclear energy come into this mix? I won't show my total outrage that we gave the whole world the keys to the bomb factory if they promised not to get the bomb. And that's what North Korea did. They got their peaceful nuclear power. They walked out of the treaty, made a bomb. That was all the fuss about Iran that was enriching uranium, you know, as a step towards the bomb, which they got the technology from that treaty. And the treaty does not ban nuclear weapons. It just says we're going to make good faith efforts. We have a treaty to ban chemical weapons. We have a treaty to ban biological weapons, landmines, cluster bombs, but we never ban nuclear weapons. And we took a case to the World Court in 1996 and they looked at the treaty and the agreements and they said, there's a legal obligation to conclude negotiations on a treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons but we will not rule whether they're illegal in the case where the very survival of a state is at stake. So the court gave a green light to the deterrence doctrine, which is why these nuclear weapon states said they need it. So there's a legal gap. The International Red Cross about seven years ago gave a huge world-shattering speech on the humanitarian catastrophic consequences of nuclear war. A new campaign was formed. Over the last two and a half years, we've had three major meetings in Oslo, Norway, in Nayarit, Mexico, and in Vienna, Austria. And what is this new group that got formed? They're saying the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons that we have to fill this legal gap and ban the bomb. They should be prohibited and banned, just like we banned chemical and biological weapons and landmines and cluster bombs. And it just took off, wound up in the UN this fall in the General Assembly, where 100 and almost 130 countries voted to begin negotiations, which started, we had a week of them in March, and they're coming back again in June and July, and they're very confident that they're going to have a treaty to ban the bomb. And basically, it's signed by all the non-nuclear weapon states. I mean, it was very interesting. It was very interesting that at the UN meeting, all the nuclear weapon states came. This was in, in the General Assembly where they voted to establish the negotiations. And the Western states voted no, the US, Russia, England, uh, France, and Israel. But India, Pakistan, and China abstained. And North Korea, guess what? North Korea voted to ban the bomb. I'm sure you saw this on the front page of the New York Times. Unfortunately, with all the Trump insanity and the, you know, he was going to recognize Taiwan, none of the nuclear weapon states came to this negotiation. Let's slow this down a little bit so we can take a look at each of the pieces of it. There were many decades where nothing was done to try and slow down the proliferation of nuclear weapons. 
what changed? How did this conference at the UN come about? Where was the pressure created? What governments or groups were the ones that really pushed to move forward on it? Well, as I explained, the Non-Proliferation Treaty was written in 1970. It was due to expire in 1995. And they were supposed to come and evaluate. And instead of getting rid of making the good faith efforts, there were 10 times as many weapons as when they signed the treaty. So the whole civil society showed up at that treaty and we formed our Abolition 2000 Network to make the nuclear weapon states make good on their promise. We, we drafted a model nuclear weapons convention saying exactly how you would get rid of them, you know, take the bombs off the missiles, how you'd store them, how you'd verify it, how you'd monitor it. We had all these lawyers and science experts. It became a UN document. Ban Ki-moon was promoting it. But meanwhile, the U.S., for example, Obama pledged a trillion dollars over the next 30 years for new bomb factories, for missiles, submarines, and the others are all following on lead. So we needed something new. And this new campaign came because of the gap in the world court decision and because the nuclear weapon states were obviously acting in bad faith, they formed the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Which is also referred to as ICANN. Right. So the third conference was in Austria where they did the humanitarian pledge and 127 countries signed a pledge that they're going to work to get a treaty to ban and prohibit nuclear weapons. And it went into the General Assembly, the UN, the first committee, the disarmament committee, which is excellent because a lot of the disarmament agreements are negotiated in Geneva at the Committee on Disarmament, and it operates by consensus. So the U.S. has been able to block proposals by China and Russia to negotiate a treaty to keep weapons out of space, and Pakistan is blocking the Fissile Material Cutoff Treaty. Oh, and the MPT that was extended in 1995, part of the deal why people voted to extend it was they promised to have five-year review conferences and evaluate how they were doing. So the last review conference in 2015 broke up without any consensus. 2020, they adopted a whole list of great things they were going to do, and then they didn't do one of them. And when you say the NPT, that's the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Exactly. And South Africa made this heartbreaking speech in 2015 at the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review where they said this is nuclear apartheid. You know, the nuclear halves are holding the whole rest of the world hostage to their security needs. And what this campaign is doing is shifting the conversation from security to humanitarian consequences, and Pope Francis sent a statement to Vienna at the third you know, government conference before it went to the UN, rejecting the Catholic Church's earlier position that deterrence was okay, you know, the legal gap that the World Court found. The Catholic Church agreed that if your uh, very survival of a state is at stake, you can use nuclear weapons. Well, Pope Francis said no. And he restated that at this last meeting this March. So we have a lot of great forces on our side now. 
I read that among those expressing support for the ban included 120 countries, over 220 citizens groups, and a letter signed by more than 2,000 scientists from around the world, all of them endorsing the UN talks. With this much power and energy and belief coming forward that we need to ban the bombs, how powerful was that given the fact that the nuclear owning nations and their allies didn't attend and refuted the talks. Right. This is the purpose of the ban the bomb treaty. It will not eliminate nuclear weapons. It will create a legal norm and a taboo. We will be able to go to banks and pension funds and say they're illegal and you should not be investing in them like we did with landmines so that even though the U.S. never signed the landmine treaty, they don't use them because it's too shameful. We're going to try to shame people. Japan is under this nuclear umbrella. Who's under the U.S. nuclear umbrella? The NATO countries, Japan, Australia, and South Korea. Japan actually came to this meeting this month for one day, said they couldn't support a treaty that was so divisive between the nuclear haves and the nuclear nons. I mean, this is sheer hypocrisy. They tell us all the time how many people died, 210,000 in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and they, we had these wonderful people, survivors of the Hiroshima bombing at the meeting, telling their heart-wrenching stories, as well as an Aboriginal person from Australia that lived near the test site where the British were testing atmospheric nuclear bombs and destroying the health of the, the indigenous population. So we're going to be shaming them and hopefully we can peel them off from the alliance and make it unacceptable to have nuclear weapons. It's really in the U.S. and Russia's court because there are 15,000 nukes on the planet and 14,000 are in the U.S. and Russia. The other seven countries have 1,000 between all of them. And the U.S. has rejected and rebuffed Russian proposals all the way through. I mean, it's really interesting. I've been looking at the history. Stalin, after World War II, you know, that we were allies, said to Truman, why don't you turn the bomb over to the UN and put it under international control? And we made the condition so onerous, keeping a veto and all that, that he said the hell with it and got his own bomb. Gorbachev, when the war came down and he let go of all of Eastern Europe without a shot, it was like a miracle. He and Reagan met. And he said, why don't we get rid of nuclear weapons? Reagan said, great idea. So Gorbachev said, yes, but you can't do Star Wars. And Reagan said, I'm not going to give up Star Wars. So that was the end of that deal. Putin proposed to Clinton that we cut our arsenals to a 1,000 nuclear weapons each and call everybody to the table, but you cannot put missiles in Poland and Romania. Clinton said, I'm not promising that. I mean, how would we feel that, oh, another thing we promised Gorbachev, they were very upset when the war came down that we wanted Germany to be united, East and West Germany, as a NATO state because Russia lost 27 million people to the Nazi onslaught, so they were scared of Germany. But Reagan promised Gorbachev, if you don't object, we promise we will not expand NATO. Well, guess what? It's right up to their border. 
I mean, how would we feel if Russia put their troops in Canada or Mexico? We know what happened when they put them in Cuba. We almost had World War Three, And part of the deal that Kennedy made with Khrushchev to get the missiles out of Cuba was that we would take our missiles out of Turkey, which is right on Russia's border. Of course, they didn't announce it because the U.S. Congress can never look like they're giving in to anybody, but they quietly withdrew the missiles from Turkey, and guess what? They're back. So we've been very provocative. And the, oh, the last thing that I want to tell you that where we're blocking progress, China and Russia proposed a space weapons ban treaty in the Commission on Disarmament, which requires consensus in 2008. We rejected it, we blocked it, and they did it again in 2015, and we blocked it. And when we boasted about how we and Israel attacked Iran's uranium enrichment with the Stuxnet virus, I don't know if you remember this, but we had this attack and we boasted about it. China and Russia said to us, let's negotiate a cyber war ban. And we said, we're not interested. So I think our foreign policy disaster. I mean, the ban is going to help us peel off the NATO states and Japan, possibly South Korea with their new government, Australia maybe. It won't get rid of the nuclear weapon. In order to do that, we have to make a deal with Russia, you know, on space weapons, on missiles. We have to pull back our stuff, you know, because that they can't compete with us at that level, so they keep their nukes around. Since you did attend the conference, give us a sense of what actually took place and the kind of testimony that was given on behalf of banning the bomb. Well, this was the most amazing, wonderful event I ever went to at the UN because the nuclear weapon states vetoed and didn't come there and boycotted it. We had the most open back and forth discussion between civil society and governments. We would testify. Usually they give us a half hour. Then they lock us outside the doors so we can't hear what they're negotiating about. We were in the room the whole time. And our experts, our lawyers, our scientists, our uh, activists were invited on panels and answered questions. And there was a very free and open dialogue. And what we wound up negotiating was what would be the parameters of the ban treaty, like the, what would be in the preamble, what institutional arrangements, how would we accept the nuclear weapon states if they want to join, do they have to give up their weapons before they come in, or do we give them a time frame, you know, when they sign. So the chairman took all our suggestions, and to me, this was really the UN, how it's supposed to be working. Like it was democracy at work, it was people and government. And she's going to prepare a draft, and we're coming back the last week in June and the first two weeks in July to draft a treaty. We're going to have a treaty, and it'll be open for signature, and it'll go into effect with not too many required signatures and then we'll use it we'll go to the banks and the pensions and say you can't invest in nuclear weapons we'll go to japan and say what do you mean you you want to be under the japan of all countries you know we're just going to do it oh and by the way one country this is outstanding holland netherlands they were the only umbrella state to abstain on the first vote to negotiate, and they showed up, their delegate was there the whole time. He said, 
they support nuclear disarm, but they can't go against the deterrent. I mean, he didn't say the right thing, but they were there. I keep thinking of those Dutch men last week that are walking, holding hands. Did you see that? A gay couple was assaulted by some right-wing bullies, and everybody in the Netherlands is now men are walking around parliamentarians' business and holding hands to show their support. Well, having Holland there was something. I, I don't know what it means, but they were there. They, they weren't for it. At least they came. Given that it was only last week that Trump launched the Tomahawk missiles, 59 of them, on Syria... And if I were a Native American, I would definitely try to get the name of that missile changed. But with that kind of a launch and with that willingness to go into a warlike stature, how does that impact, if it does, this push to ban the bomb? I mean, we're America. We're law and order. Where is our law and order? This is so lawless. We signed the U.N. treaty. It says we will never attack another country unless it's self-defense where they're attacking us and we have to act and we don't have time to go to the UN and talk to Security Council and if somebody vetoes it at the Security Council, let's say Russia vetoed it, then we should ask for a commission, an inquiry and find out what happened. This kind of immediate action without thought, without inquiry, this is like so un-American, so unconstitutional. I mean, and he did it without going to Congress with actually bombing a new country. And I don't blame just him. I mean, Obama was doing it. Clinton was the bad boy on the block that started it when he bombed Kosovo without the UN. And let me ask you something. Everybody's so upset about the Syrian children. It's terrible. But how is bombing more people going to help those children? You're going to be killing more children. You know, and grown-ups. I mean, what? how could that possibly be an answer? I mean, it's just common sense. So, given the recent bombing, what does that say about the potential for Donald Trump, who can launch a nuke anytime he wants, and within four minutes of his say-so, it can go, and nobody can stop him? What does that do to put pedal to the metal for the need for this ban? I think as crazy as anybody is, they're not going to deliberately launch a nuclear weapon because Russia and we have 2,000 nuclear bombs targeted every city, Moscow, Leningrad, New York, Boston, Washington. I mean, like, we can't use them. What's going to make this so dangerous, what makes it dangerous, is an accident. The structure is decaying. There's one close call after another. There was a, a story about the man who saved the world. He was a Russian colonel in a bunker somewhere, you know, and they thought the U.S. was attacking. And his orders were to let all his launching go at all our cities. And he decided not to, and it was a computer error. And we've had the same thing on our side, where they miss calculate something or where something almost goes off and it doesn't. So it's true. I mean, Trump gives us an extra reason to think, my God, but I mean, we'd be better off telling Trump, go talk to Putin. I mean, why did we stop him from talking to Putin? Who was stopping him? That's the military industrial complex. They're so afraid that they're going to lose their cash cow if we make peace. I mean, they sabotage all the peace efforts. 
This is what President Eisenhower warned us about, military-industrial complex. And he also mentioned the academic community, which is part of it. And now it's the media. And, you know, GE owns NBC, and they make uh, nuclear missiles and weapons. I mean, the media is in bed. Everybody wants war. There's, there's no peace media. It's the economics of war that seems to drive this and the people who are going to get richer as opposed to the people who are going to be suffering on the ground, which actually is all of us because it's one planet, it's one ecosystem, and nobody is immune to the consequences of what would happen with even a single nuclear explosion, let alone the chain reaction of explosions that could be set off by a single bomb. It's insane. First of all, we never even saw the planet as this one world beautiful until 1968. I mean, this is the crumbling of the patriarchy, the corporate greed that's not just military greed, but fossil fuel and fracking. I mean, we know that Mother Earth is suffering. You know, we have to take care of it. It doesn't care about us. We got to care about it or else we'll lose our home. And this is such a distraction from what we all have to do together. Even the whole terrorism thing, I think that's the biggest nonsense, the cold yellow and the cold red and the cold orange. And then they didn't even release the last 10 pages of the 911 report, and they're coasting on this Saudi Arabian attack on a building in New York City to declare war on so many countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen. And every time we bomb another country, it's like throwing a rock at a hornet's nest. You stir up hatred and anger, rightfully. If your home was being bombed, wouldn't you despise the bomber or the killer? There's no justification for it, except that there's money to be made. It's a racket. In terms of breaking this racket, you talked in general, and I'd like a little bit more information about taking this treaty and approaching banks and pension funds and the like. What is it that needs to be done, and who can do it? There is a fabulous campaign, Don't Bank on the Bomb, www.don'tbankonthebomb.org, and you can go and see who has investments in every country, and then you can go to your bank or your pension and say you shouldn't be invested in this. And they give you good operating instructions for how to do it. It's a wonderful campaign. There's also the I Can Abolish Nuclear Weapons campaign, www.icanw.org. And if you go there, you can get tuned into what's happening with the treaty now, we should certainly talk about it in America, but I mean, frankly, once they deliberately redistricted Dennis Kucinich out of his congressional seat, there's not one member of Congress that I think would support, except maybe this Tulsi Gabbard. Another group that I just love, and I'm on the coordinating committee, is called World Beyond War. It's www.worldbeyondwar.org. And the purpose of this organization is to bring together all the silos. It's not just nuclear weapons, it's everything. It's the climate and it's Black Lives Matter. And it's saying that we can't have war anymore. Like war is just so 20th century. I mean, we just can't do it. It's like shooting yourself in the foot every time you shoot. You know, it's going to 
come back on us. We have to think differently. It's it's the end of the patriarchy. Like the women have to take power. And I think the growing power of the indigenous people, what we saw in North Dakota is so incredible. And we should all make a commitment not to let one single pipeline go. I mean, we're working in New York. They want to put a pipeline a half a mile from our big nuclear Fukushima on the Hudson power plants, Indian Point, and where. The other thing is, everybody now should get into politics. We should not leave it to the Democratic establishment because I think they're like the Republicans. I mean, Bernie showed that we have a lot of energy for free college and single payer health care. It's really funny that the Wall Street Journal, after this disaster with abominable care, you know, went down the tubes. The Wall Street Journal had an article saying maybe we should consider single pay enough for profit. Yeah. I'm going far afield, but I, in a way, it's important that we do go far afield, that we shouldn't think in silos. We had to work very hard to get this big environmental march that's coming up in April in Washington to put the word peace in their platform. We have to bring everything together. But as far as the nukes go, I would definitely work on don't bank on the bomb. If you have friends in, in foreign countries, write to them and tell them to get to their governments to support the ban treaty. You know, if you know people in non-nuclear weapon states or you're in international organizations, put it on their agenda because we want to get a huge turnout in uh, the end of June and the beginning of July to actually negotiate the treaty. Will you be attending at that time? Oh, for sure. It'll be. First of all, I live in New York, so I'm lucky. <laughs> As though we couldn't tell from both your accent and the noise out the window. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm looking for the people are wonderful. They're from all over. I mean, that's what's so great because they're not nuclear weapon states. Like We have so many people from Africa. Latin America, they're taking the lead on this. Those countries are taking the lead. They're saying they're not going to be part of nuclear apartheid. They're going to work to get rid of these things. And what do you think is the chance that the U.S. and Russia, because those are the two major players, that they would be willing to back down from their nuclear saber-rattling and actually begin the process of scaling back on nukes with the goal of ultimate elimination? Well, as I went through the chronology, Russia has always been extending a proposal to move that way, and the U.S. always blocks it. And what we're seeing now was this nut job Trump saying he's going to make a deal with Putin, and the whole country came down on him. I don't believe anything about Putin influencing the election. I think that's all so that we won't talk to Russia and make a deal. Make a deal on? Nuclear weapons. Because he tried with Clinton, Putin. He said, let's cut to a thousand. Because Gorbachev said to Reagan, let's get rid of all of them. And when we talk about it, China and Russia always say we have to look at our strategic security, which they mean that the U.S. is pushing ahead on Star Wars, the U.S. is pushing ahead on cyber war, and we don't want to stop. And if we're going to be the leading, you know, cyber war uh, contender or the leading space dominator, then they're going to hold on to their nukes. We have to have peace in America. I mean, we have to reverse course. And 
I think Bernie showed that it could happen. That was like a whole new stream coming out of people's hunger to do the right thing in America. You know, Occupy Wall Street, that whole 99% and 1%. We all got it now. We know that we're in the grips. The, the whole war situation is corporations that are, you know, into their profits. So I think there's a lot we can do, particularly on the nukes in the U.S. Don't bank on the bomb. Is there anything nuke-related that you would like to add? I'd like to make a pitch for sustainable energy because that's the solution. We could put millions of people to work in a green economy. If you went to solar and wind and geothermal and hydro, you wouldn't need to protect oil lines. I read that the Pentagon was spending $50 billion a year in peacetime just to protect the oil tankers coming back and forth. Not only that, you would save hundreds of millions of dollars in health costs from the asthma and the, you know, the carbon-inflicted illness on society. So I would definitely like to make a pitch, and I've been suggesting this, so I'm going to put it out to your audience. You know, we are such sports fanatics. We watch all these competitions, and Jerry Brown has just announced that he's going to be working with Scotland on wind power. And why isn't Mario Cuomo doing something in New York? So I think we need like a world energy series, like an Olympics. Who can get to 100% the fastest? And on that, Mark Jacobson at Stanford has the solutionsproject.org, which is fabulous. He tells you every state what you can do to get to 100%. That's the positive. I mean, we should get into government. We should support Common Cause and the Civil Liberties Union and get rid of the Electoral College. I mean, we've had a lot of reforms, but we're not done. You know, we have to keep (laughs) going and we got to do it fast because we got Trump in our neck. Alice. It's always such a trip to tap into your database and understand the magnitude of what we're doing and how nuclear sits as a big part of it, and there are all these other pieces. So thank you so much for your work and for your involvement with the United Nations and all these other issues, and especially thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks. Great to be here. Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. We'll have the links she mentioned up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 303. For a concise understanding of the strategy behind the Don't Bank on the Bomb campaign, here's an interview I did with Susie Snyder. She's with the Netherlands Peace Group PAX and works directly with Don't Bank on the Bomb, both the group and the strategy that Alice told us about. Susie and I spoke at Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on the dynamics of possible nuclear extinction. Cheerful title, isn't it? That event was held February 28 to March 1st of 2015. Susie Snyder from PAX, the Netherlands, provided a strategy for taking funding away from companies that make nuclear bombs and delivery components. Here she is with the short version of that strategy, which has implications for nuclear reactors as well. 
It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments, go public. Because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. Susie Snyder of DontBankOnTheBomb.com. She pointed out that Blue Cross and Blue Shield are invested in nuclear weapons manufacturers. This is either a conflict of interest or a great marketing plan. Either way, time to let your banks know. This is a strategy that has been proven to work, and future generations will thank you as long as they have the opportunity to be born. That was Susie Snyder of the Dutch Peace Group PACS and Don't Bank on the Bomb. Dot org. Links will also be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 303. And while we're talking about links, Alice Slater briefly mentioned the Russian colonel who did not push the button when computers in Russia mistakenly showed the United States as being in the process of bombing Russia. That man's name is Stanislav Petrov, and he's the subject of the film The Man Who Saved the World. It's harrowing, it's chilling in its depiction of how easy it is for something to go wrong that can lead to the destruction of the world. We will have links up on the website both to the film and also to Nuclear Hot Seat number 223 from September 29, 2015, which is when I spoke with the filmmakers. Activist shout-out! And unfortunately, this is a sad one. Bruno Barillo, researcher and ardent opponent of nuclear testing, passed away on Saturday, March 25th, in a hospital in Taouane, French Polynesia, after a long illness. He was 77 years old. From the 1960s to the 1990s, France conducted 210 nuclear tests in the South Pacific. As a member of the clergy, Bruno Barillo called on the church to respond to this issue, but was not listened to. He found his convictions could not be followed in the church, so he resigned and began research on the French nuclear tests. After working for many years for anti-nuclear organizations, he came to Polynesia in the 1990s as a journalist for Liberation. From 2009 to 2013, he was the Polynesian delegate reporting on the consequences of nuclear testing in French Polynesia. 
He was to make proposals and recommendations on issues related to the environment, public health, social and cultural impacts, and land management. He was also spokesperson for the Liaison Committee for the Coordination of Health Studies on French Nuclear Testing. As recently as August of 2016, Barillo spoke on Tahitian television about his wish to see changes in conditions for eligibility for compensation for damages from nuclear testing. While he was not well known north of the equator, Bruno Barillo left a mark on the anti-nuclear movement in French Polynesia, and he will be missed. As for today's final thought, I'm all thought out. Class dismissed. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 11, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from independent.co.uk, mainichi.jp, thebulletin.org, democracynow.org, San Diego Times Union, The Republic, azcentral.com, nucleotidings.com, nj.com, kitchener.ctvnews.ca, Dr. Gordon Edwards and the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, nuclearstreet.com, constructionnews.co.uk, theecologist.org, japantoday.com, japantimes.co.jp, Kyoto News, NHK World, deunrenard.wordpress.com, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray, and a shout-out to the big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. I am still closing in on 2,000 followers, getting closer all the time, so get on down to the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. It's the one that's got the Nuclear Hot Seat logo on it. Don't ask me how, but I ended up with two Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat sites. Let's put it all on this one. While you're there, feel free to check out our posts, like the page, and put a comment of your own on. We would love to hear from you. And now let's see how fast we can get it up to 2,000. Sean McGee's European Report will return next week, computer permitting. I know that's what we said last week, but hope springs eternal. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. And know that it will be put towards getting me to Las Vegas in 10 days to cover the Native American Conference on Nuclear Issues. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing any nuclear activist wants to be able to say is, I told you so. So let's not go there, okay? Now. You've all had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat.
Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.